One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good evening, Britain, and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV, the place to be. It's been another day of royal intrigue, mystery and doublespeak in the world of Harry and Meghan as their mate, Omid Scobie, continued to wrestle with the fallout from his new book and the leaked manuscript from the Netherlands. Last night, we broke the news that Piers Morgan had revealed the names of the senior royals that were published in the Dutch version of that book, Endgame. I don't believe any racist comments were ever made by any of the royal family. And until there is actual evidence of those comments being made, I will never believe it. But now we can start the process of finding out if they ever got uttered, what the context was, and whether there was any racial intent at all. Like I say, I don't believe there was. The royals who are named in this book are King Charles and Catherine, Princess of Wales. The announcement made headlines around the world and the country's still reeling from what happened afterwards. Let's remind ourselves of where it all started. Meghan first made claims in her Oprah Winfrey interview in 2021 that two members of the family had questioned what colour Archie's skin would be. And also concerns and conversations about how dark his skin might be when he's born. What? About how dark your baby is going to be? Potentially, and what that would mean or look like. Hold up, hold up. There's Stop several right now. There are several conversations. There's a about conversation it. with you, with Harry. But when Harry promoted his book earlier this year, he insisted that Meghan had never accused anyone of racism. In the Oprah interview, you accuse members of your family of racism. You don't even really? well of the British press said that. Right. I did. Did Meghan never mention that they were racist? She said there were troubling comments about yeah, Archie's skin colour. There was concern color. about his skin colour. Right. Wouldn't you describe that as essentially racist? I wouldn't, not having lived within that family. Confusing, right? Scobie says he didn't put the senior royal's names in any version of the manuscripts and the publishers have called it an error and claimed UK laws prevented him from naming the royals. But it's emerged today that the translator of the book has insisted the names at the centre of the scandal were in the manuscript she was given. Saskia Peters spoke for the first time today about the Scobie scandal, saying this, the names of the royals were there in black and white. I did not add them, I just did what I was paid to do, and that was translate the book from English into Dutch. So far, so straightforward. But hang on a minute, didn't Odious say he didn't include the names when he submitted his manuscript to the publisher? So like last night, there is something that just does not add up at all. When Ms Peters was told that, she said, I don't know why he would say that. This is the first time anything like this has ever happened. 
Piers' revelation last night was front-page news this morning and it's been rumbling around every media outlet ever since, though many are still too frightened to say the names. We'll find out later. King Charles was even asked about the row when he arrived at COP28 in Dubai this afternoon and the security minister, Tom Tugendhat, told our very own Jeremy Kyle that the rumour and scuttlebutt about His Majesty the King is frankly completely unproven. He went on, I see this as hearsay and an attempt to disparage somebody who served our country with enormous dignity and enormous grace for many years. Now, this story is not done yet and we'll bring you every twist and turn as it happens. So whatever you do, do not go anywhere for the next two hours. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Let's get it on. Now, don't forget you can get in touch with the show on all the socials at Talk TV and on the phones, 0344 499 1000. Calls will cost the national rate and we'll take those calls a little bit later on in this hour, but make them now. To discuss the Markle debacle, I'm joined by the Royal Editor Robert Johnson and former BBC Royal Correspondent Michael Cole. Robert, uh, very good evening to you. Let me start uh, with you. I mean, this is an extraordinary mess uh, that seems to have been created by uh, Omid Scobie. Um, we've got the word... Uh, that he's given, that he didn't put these names anywhere, has never written them down on any piece of paper, has never put them in any manuscript anybody's ever seen. And we got the translator in the Netherlands going, well, I didn't invent them. They were there when I was given the manuscript. What's going on? This guy is lying. I mean, the translator seems a perfectly uh, honest woman who's just did a job of translation. Yeah. They've had a pulpit book in the Netherlands, which... It's hugely uh, embarrassing to the publishers there, but also embarrassing for Scobie. His, his, uh, his attack on the British royal family, or not faultless, but his attack on the British royal family um, is, is, uh, is dangerous. Um, and it looks like the title's actually going to come back and haunt him as his end game, because I really can't see many people believing his book uh, going forward. The King is not a racist. Catherine's not a racist. Everyone in this country knows that's the case. This is all about book sales. Uh, this is all about money. This is all about promoting Scobie, Mr. Scobie in America, so he can make his name over there. I wrote a piece in my Arrow paper, Mike, in which I said it was bollocks. That's what it is. Yeah, I, funnily enough, I said that just the other night, that the whole book was actually bollocks as well. Um, but let's come to Michael. Um, Michael, you know the inner workings of the palace. I mean, we've been told that they're considering all options at this moment in time. Um, what options do they have, if, if any? Yes, Mike, you're absolutely right. It's uh, it's like a bad plot from EastEnders, but <laughs> being played out of the palace, isn't it? I mean, this uh, this uh, this this charge, it's pernicious, of course, to accuse anybody of being a racist because it's an easy allegation to make, but it's almost impossible to refute because you have to prove a negative. And in this case, whether it's a royal personage or just you and me and the guy down the street. Uh, it's very damaging and, and it's very nasty and it's entirely unnecessary. And I think we have to uh, look at this because uh, this is a doubling down, first of all, and you played it. You had that interview with Oprah Winfrey when she does this very stagey pause and then says, what? Mm. We have to remember that <laughs> Megan and, and Oprah Winfrey were both uh, professional actresses for quite a long time. And yes. that was... That was the little scene they were playing out. And when Harry joined it, he looked very embarrassed by it. He looked very uncomfortable and he said he would never talk about it. And then you saw the Bradby interview with him. Well, if, um, if there was any semblance, any, any, any 
sense of duty, residual sense of duty, Prince Harry would be distancing himself from this book very rapidly mm. and repudiating its contents and making it very clear that it had nothing to do with him because Omid Scobie sees everything through a Sussex prism in this book where he slags off every member of the royal family. There are two he doesn't slag off, and there we are. We're looking at one of them there, the lovely Meghan, and there's her, her husband. But listen, Bob Robert there has written some brilliant books on the royal family. Uh, this man has written two. So I think it's worth asking and reminding your viewers on the Republic of, of Mike Graham who uh, Omid Scobie is. He's, right. he's 42 years old. He one, At one time, he took six years off his age, but he's 42. He was born in Wales. He's got a Welsh father and an uh, Iranian mother. He, he went to public school or fee-paying school in Oxford, and then he studied journalism or communications in London. Not very and then well. he worked for one or two magazines I'd never heard of, writing... Um, uh, gossip uh, stuff about celebrities and mm. so on. And now, just because something is written in a book between two hard covers doesn't make it more factual. In fact, probably makes it less factual than what you're going to read in the Times or the Sun or the mm. Daily Mail or any reputable newspaper that's published in this country because they're published uh, under the rule of law in this country and they're very, very careful about that mm. and they behave... Uh, almost all of the time, with great responsibility. So let's try and put this into perspective, because it is damaging what's being said, yeah. as, as Robert has said. And it shouldn't be taken too seriously. This man seems to have a, a tiger by the tail here, and we're all jumping and listening to what he has to say. But really, what is it worth? Right. Well, I think you're right. I don't think too many people are believing it. Robert and I go back a long way. I don't want to tell you how far back, but it was a very long time ago. <laughs> uh, and I can vouch for his uh, absolute uh, assured journalistic style. And the books are brilliant. But, Robert, you know, if we go back to what happened when Oprah Winfrey did that interview, you know, there was a sense uh, around the world, I think, for a, for a good couple of years that Britain was a racist country, that somehow uh, the institution of the royal family was at the head of it, and that was racist as well. So surely something has to come back. People talk about blowback. Surely the blowback now is on to Meghan for making that allegation, isn't it? Well, Mike, um, Michael made a very good point, which I think is that really Harry and Meghan have to come up publicly, totally distance themselves from Mr Scobie and say he had nothing, they had nothing to do with the book. Well, how can they do that? Well, they did collaborate, um, and certainly Meghan collaborated through her friends and people on Finding Freedom, the first yeah. book that gave him a platform to sort of then get another book deal to, to spread this piffle about the royal family. The, the, the reality is, though, the royal family is a dated organisation, it's an ancient organisation, it's got old-fashioned ways and protocol, but that doesn't mean it's racist. They're wildly, like in most institutions, there may be one or two racists in there, there probably is. But that doesn't mean the whole institution is bad for the core. And I think to label our king, who has done more, I think, for diversity and trying to promote uh, promote communities across this country than anybody in the last 50 years, mm. uh, is absolutely appalling. And I think really, in this one, I, I mean, I don't work with Obed, you know, just on the other side of the fence, we'd sit there and discuss the royals. But I think he should hang his head in shame at trying to suggest in any way that the king is a racist. And, to label Catherine, the Princess of Wales, racist is simply a disgrace. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the young woman has done more, I think, for the royal family and 
actually young children in the last five years and you know haven't seen anything like that since the days of princess diana when she started out and I, I do think that there is something a line to be drawn here i think what michael was saying is spot on i mean you know the reality is the newspapers you know they couldn't they i think they should have named the names because once peers came out and boldly on talk tv said what he said that stopped all this nonsense online of all the speculation yeah you know and i think that's where talkers really you know, done well to get those names out. I mean, at first I was a bit worried about it. I thought maybe it was just Piers being a bit narcissistic. But actually he was bang on, but the reality is... <laughs> no, well, that's the thing, you yeah. know, because at the end of the day, Piers quite rightly um, made a decision based on the fact that there's nothing wrong with saying that these are the names of the people who have appeared in this manuscript. Yeah, as long as you don't believe, them, believe it. Yeah. Mysteriously, yeah, but I mean, that's all he said, basically. Michael, I'll come back to you. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, yeah. um, nobody can explain how this, these two names became a part of a manuscript that was given to a translator in the Netherlands. There can only be one well, explanation, surely. If it, if it was an honest mistake uh, by the publisher in in Holland, that's one thing. If, on the other hand, uh, it was a publicity stunt in order to get worldwide headlines, yeah. that is absolutely contemptible. Mm. And I think we're entitled to find out the truth of that. But do you know, Mike, I, I'm old enough to remember Her Majesty the Queen dancing the high life in 1960 with Kwame Nkrumah, the rather revolutionary first leader. I'm not, of Michael. I'm not old enough. <laughs> I do remember that. That's 63 years ago. Yeah. And I can tell you, having observed Her Majesty around the world, there was there wasn't a racist bone in her body. She really loved the Commonwealth. It wasn't just a nice place to go in winter because the sunshine was there. She really believed in it. It was one of the great things that spurred her on. She loved horse racing, yes, and she loved she loved the Commonwealth and the people within it. And then she danced with Kenneth Kawanda, and she danced with anybody uh, who, who was a, a member of the Commonwealth because she regarded it as a family. Right. And if anybody stands up and says that Her Majesty the Queen was a hypocrite, I would probably be the first person to want to knock them down mm. because that would be a very, very, very <laughs> slanderous statement. It's not true. And also, having witnessed the, the King, he studied anthropology <laughs> at, uh, at Cambridge, and he said rather rather uh, revealingly, he said it's so helpful because when he goes around the world to the friendly islands or somewhere in the South Pacific and he sees the rituals going on, he understands them. He has got a great, uh, he's, a, he's a great teacher. He's got this didactic um, feel about him and he loves to learn all this stuff. And, and throughout, okay, you know, he's, he was the one who insisted the, the Brigade of Guards admitted uh, right. black soldiers, and there they are in the household cavalry or the brigade of guards or whatever it is, and, and has a black aquary and, 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 and extends the hand of friendship to everybody. And he is the head of the Commonwealth. Yeah. And the Commonwealth may not be terribly effective, but it is the best thing we've got for a club of like-minded yeah. people who believe in the rule of law and freedom, and they're united by the English language. And what's more, Mozambique, a Portuguese colony, Rwanda, which was originally a German and then a Belgian uh, colony, they've wanted to join the Commonwealth. Why? Yeah. Partly because the head of the Commonwealth is the king, who has been cruelly, nastily and libelously accused of being a racist. Yeah. And I think it's a 
appalling. Yeah, absolutely right. Guys, I've got to run. Thank you very much indeed. Robert Jobson, of course, there. Michael Cole as well, uh, former uh, advisor to the royal family. Now, let's get a perspective from across the pond because uh, it is time for the To Die For Daily podcast with Kinsey Schofield. Uh, three times, three nights in a row, Kinsey. I never knew we'd have to do this again, but here we are. Uh, Piers Morgan's naming of uh, uh, naming and shaming, of, in a way, of the lickspittle uh, Omid Scobie. He's given him another going over tonight. Um, what are they saying in America? What's going on over there? Yeah, I know. I, I heard Pierce's latest um, tirade. I needed ointment after it. I was like, oh, my <laughs> gosh. Home is going to need a Band-Aid. Uh, well, you know, actually, what I think is quite interesting is, number one, the U.S. media has named both of the individuals, which did take over 24 hours after Pierce originally did it. I right. thought that that... that was interesting that that took a bit of time. Additionally, I want to talk to you about two pieces of media Omid has done here in the States. Number one, he talked to ABC News. Um, I think that that aired late last night. Mm. And he, what he told Nightline was that he could not tell them who the royal racists were, but he wasn't opposed to releasing that information in the future. Oh, yeah. Now, I also found an interview with Omid from Vanity Fair magazine that has to be weeks old because it features features new photos of him, Mike. And, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure Omid loves a, a good headshot. Oh, yeah. Um, but he... He spoke to Vanity Fair magazine, and he told them that it's time to burn bridges. He's ready to burn bridges when it comes to the royal family. And I get a sense that he's ready to burn bridges when it comes to the Duke and Duchess of Sussex. Who gave him this information? He denies that it's Harry and Meghan, although, uh, you know, a cynical person would argue that there there's a lot of a lot of um, evidence that he could have received that information mm. from Harry and Meghan or someone in, in their circle. Um, but it does seem like they have been pining to get back into the British mm. royal family. Uh, and perhaps they did not know that this was going to be Omid's strategy and, and they're caught off guard at this point in time. But telling Nightline that he is willing to inevitably talk about the royal racism. You know, maybe one day he'll name them. Right. And then to tell Vanity Fair that he's ready to burn bridges. Uh, I just think that, that those are some interesting quotes from here in the States, mm. knowing what we know tonight, which is that his translator said those names appeared yeah. in her English version. Exactly right. Well, there's seem, seemingly many parts of his story and many things that Piers Morgan was pointing out tonight that he has lied about in the past. And you have to conclude if somebody's willing to do that, uh, including lying about his age, lying about something he witnessed at the mirror when he supposedly worked there, all of that. But let's have a look um, at what he said when he was on uh, Good Morning Britain, uh, which was here this morning uh, in, this, in this country. I had never submitted a book that had their names in it. So... I can only talk about my version. Yeah. I'm obviously frustrated. I'm, I wouldn't say I'm upset about yeah. it because, to be honest, I've been operating in a bubble of no emotion for the last 10 days. But I am frustrated about it, just like I am many of the other things that I've seen written or said about the book. Well, he's frustrated, um, but he didn't put those names into any manuscript. So it's an absolute mystery uh, and a completely uh, unanswerable question, it would seem, um, Kinsey. Nobody knows how those names got to uh, the Netherlands. 
Well, Saskia tells us that it was there in black and white, which, you know, in hindsight sounds kind of racist. So I would have used different <laughs> words. But she says it was right there in black and white in the English trans uh, in the English manuscript she received that she transcribed into Dutch. And, uh, you know, she opened the door willingly. This is the way she makes her money. Um, and she spoke to the Daily Mail. I feel like she would not put her face, her name, herself out there if she, if she, you know, if, if she weren't desperate. This feels like an act of desperation yeah. to clear her name because this is her livelihood, right. Mike. And Omid can continue to go and sell rumors and uh, and and sell stories that the royal family protocol wise are not in a position to fight but this woman this is her nine to five this is her day job and this is how she pays the bills mm. so she has got to rectify the situation on her behalf yes and she said she feels uncomfortable being at the center of such a big story which most people would say if they ever become that individual but she's also said but not omid omid if, if a camera on a microphone's in omid's face he's like make sure you get my new earrings yes. make sure you get my new nose Yes, although not for when uh, Piers Morgan asked him to come on, because I know Piers was trying to get him on his show tonight uh, and he didn't uh, take up that particular offer. But here's the thing, you know, uh, she said basically she's been doing translation of books most of her life. It's her livelihood, it's her business, as you say. This has never happened before. This has never been something that um, has, 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 has hit her desk. She's never been asked to, to uh, translate a book and then find out that something was in it that wasn't in any other edition of the book in other parts of the world. And, and just the Daily Mail describing her as clearly shocked and nervous. Mm. I mean, I would be so shocked and nervous too if all of a sudden I had the entire world on my doorstep yeah. asking that, asking if it was me that had made a mistake or did something horribly vindictive mm. or, you know, something that could potentially make make you end up in a court of law. Yeah. Um, so I, I I trust this individual. I hesitate to trust somebody that told Vanity Fair weeks ago, and it was just published three days ago, that he was ready to burn some bridges. Yeah. And knowing um, the Montecito massive as you do, um, they won't take this line down, will they? They'll always re respond with something. If they don't say anything, they'll appear somewhere. They'll, they'll suddenly be photographed, you know, at a, at a concert together or uh, at a ball game together or something. What's your... If you're a betting woman, uh, what do you reckon they're going to be doing this weekend? What do I think that they'll be doing this week? Well, you know, there we did spot Harry at a shopping for a Christmas tree one year. So maybe they'll go the wholesome route and try to be um, Pat doing some Christmas shopping. Yes. Uh, but I, uh, you know, I agree with you. To me, it's very um, interesting that we watched Megan on Netflix pursue with a vengeance a trial over a, a letter that she wrote to her father that mm. was made public. Yeah. Why are you are you not in the process of su suing Omid Scobie for releasing details about a letter that you sent to your father-in-law? Yes, like, well, TikTok, that's... Tick tock, well, tick <laughs> tock. You is... know, when is that going to happen? <laughs> that's a very, very good point. Well, Kinsey, I, I suspect you'll be busy for the next few days, but we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Kinsey Schofield there reporting into us uh, from the US of A, host of the To Die For, a daily Podcast. You're watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. From the Markle debacle uh, to the COVID catastrophe, what did former Health Secretary Matt Hancock have to say today as he was grilled in the hot seat of the COVID inquiry? More on that coming next.
Welcome back. You're watching the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Matt Hancock, remember him? He launched a ferocious attack on the government's handling of COVID today as he took the stand at the inquiry. The former health secretary described the working relationship within Downey Street as toxic. We have seen from the emails that I wasn't, and the messages I wasn't aware of at the time, um, that clearly flipped over into an unhealthy, toxic culture at the centre. Um, where any, um, anything that went wrong was seen as an almost intentional failure. Um, and worse, that amongst some people, misinformation about what the department was delivering was spread, including to the Prime Minister and at the very highest levels. Oh, dear. Uh, Hancock was also quizzed on lockdown restrictions, support for care homes and the affair that led to his resignation. Um, to discuss those revelations in more detail, I'm joined by uh, journalist and author Molly Kingsley and Talk TV's chief political commentator uh, Peter Cardwell here in the studio. Good evening uh, to both of you. Um, Matt Hancock's a sort of a sorry-looking figure these days, isn't he? People forget how much harm he actually did to the rest of the nation. And for him to start talking about toxic cultures in Downing Street and how the government were getting things wrong, I mean, he was the government. He was the Secretary of State for Health. He was the guy that was telling people how they should be behaving. Well, the interesting thing, Mike, is that he, what he did today, I think, of the inquiry was to try to set up himself and the Department of Health against Number 10 mm. and basically say that Dominic Cummings calling him a liar, the various bits of evidence that numerous people have given to this inquiry is not true. He says there isn't any evidence to back that up. He's not a liar and that there were things that he was trying to recommend, that he was trying to bring to Number 10's attention, agitating and saying there is, you know, COVID is coming in January of 2020, for example, and trying to put them on a sort of war footing to do things like mm. closing schools. He argues that they should have locked down three weeks earlier. That would have saved 90% of lives in phase one. He argues, lots of people will argue against that. So really, he's, he's putting his version across and we'll get more of it tomorrow from him. And then next week, we're going to have Boris Johnson all day, Wednesday and Thursday as well. And um, Rishi Sunak probably before Christmas. Yeah, crikey. Um, it's all our Christmases uh, made up into one. Uh, Molly, we spoke about this this week already. Um, but these guys are just like rats in a sack now, aren't they? I mean, Dominic Cummings called him a proven liar. He's calling Dominic Cummings a liar. I mean, what's the point? Yeah, there is very little point in that because, you know, what you learn and there is a really disproportionate amount of inquiry time being given over to this kind of gossip element. And, you know, let's bear in mind that this is meant to be this module two is meant to be the module that examines, you know, high level pandemic decision making, possibly the only module that's going to examine that for most of the interventions. So, you know, to have it descend into this almost like farcical examination of hearsay evidence and minutiae is very depressing when actually, you know, there are real questions to be asked about the almost complete abandonment of good structures of governance, of ethics, you know, we've talked a bit about that kind of stuff before. And, you know, all through this period, there would be so much more digging to do about how it was left to such a small handful mm. of people to make these really monumental decisions. But we're not really getting into that. We're just getting into mudslinging and name-calling. Yeah, because one of the things, Peter, that I'm slightly puzzled by, having watched quite a few former cabinet ministers now giving their side of the story, is it's not very clear who actually was in charge, as it were, who was making the decisions. I know some people have said, well, it was Dominic Cummings. Other people have said, no, it was Boris Johnson. But, I mean, if Matt Hancock is the Secretary of State for Health, 
You would have thought he'd be in the room when they were deciding to do things. Well, this is a lot of his complaint as well, yeah. Mike, when he says that he wasn't in the room when certain decisions were made. Mm. He also says that Dominic Cummings didn't like COBRA, the government's emergency committee. Yeah. So when he was attempting to make decisions, he was often blocked mm. by Dominic Cummings, who wouldn't, in his view, what the evidence he gave to the inquiry today, wouldn't actually refer things to Boris Johnson. So it does seem, certainly from what Matt Hancock is saying, and others will dispute this, including Dominic Cummings, that Dominic Cummings was effectively the Prime Minister mm. at the time of decisions were made through him and by him. So this is something that was very concerning. He also said that there has to be a better system in future. Heather Hallett, the, who is the head of this inquiry, will have to make those sort of evaluations. But Man Hancock was certainly asking her today to say that if things happened in the future, there had to be recommendations for better uh, systems to be in place if there was, as he put it, a malign actor in the system who was doing things that that person shouldn't yes. be doing. Well, it sounded to me, uh, Molly, as though there were an awful lot of malign actors in the, in the scene uh, that they were all sort of interconnecting with. Because at one point today, he was talking about his uh, recollections of things and uh, it was put to him that he didn't put that in his book. And he went, oh, well, that's because I didn't have all the papers. And they went, yeah, but you say in the book that you've got all the papers. And so, you know, which version of that is true? And then he also kind of congratulated himself from, for working very hard and doing his very best, notwithstanding the fact that he was having an affair... Um, with one of his advisers um, in his very office where, where he was supposed to be social distancing. I mean, I think it would have been good to see much, much more rigorous questioning of that because, you know, as we talked a little bit earlier in the week about, Mike, this inquiry is very much starting from the point of view that lockdown was necessary and really the key question was should we have locked down sooner? Now, if, if, if this was, you know, such a... Deadly, I think today the case he called it, you know, it was a wall of death, he said, coming our way. Mm. If that was true, why was Matt Hancock breaking his own rules? You know, you can't have it both ways. You right. can't say that the only failing here was not locking down harder and sooner and faster and then be having an affair where you're breaking the rules that you are setting for the rest of the country. And I thought he got off incredibly lightly in the circumstances, actually. I really did. I was quite shocked. Just to say, Matt Hancock would argue that he was breaking guidance rather than rules at that point during the Gina Colodan yes. show, the, the, the famous clinch. Yes. Well, he would say that, wouldn't he? But, I mean, I'm pretty sure he was breaking a bit more than that. He'd ask Mrs Hancock what she makes of that uh, particular I don't think judgment. he was particularly amused. Yeah, and, I mean, who knows what he was doing before those uh, the, the, the rules became guidance and, and who knows what, what else was going on. But it, there is this kind of collective miasma going on, it seems to me, that they all are looking back at this period and remembering it differently. And all of us are seeing it for what it was, I think. Well, this is, is a load of a load yeah. of ministers just not getting on with each other. Well, this is their chance to put their version of events mm. forward. And certainly, even, I mean, it's interesting from what Matt Hancock is saying. He's saying, well, I didn't really understand how Dominic Cummings, I always seemed to get on with him, but actually was sending all these WhatsApp saying that Matt Hancock was terrible and they had to yeah. get rid of him and he was dreadful right. and he lied all the time. So actually, it's it's different versions of truth. Mm. And actually what Heather Hallett has to do is, is go through that, decide what happened both in a narrative way, this actually happened, this didn't happen, and then to say what should happen the next time right. something like this happens and something like this will happen again. Yes. But I think Molly's right in that there are clearly a number of assumptions. Sir Hugo Keith Casey, who is obviously a very, very senior barrister, he's someone who has done a number of inquiries previously, to my mind, there are many questions he could ask that that that, that he doesn't. Mm. And I think a lot of people are frustrated that there are things right. he's not asking about and that assumptions that appear to be being made, I'm sure he would deny that. But in terms of the inquiry itself, there, there do seem to be those kind of, you know, lockdown was right and should have happened right. sooner, which isn't obviously everybody's view. Well, no, and it's it's just a view as well. It's not even something that you can conclude as a fact. Molly, just finally to you, I mean, what's actually happening in terms of what 
is coming out of this inquiry? I know we're told that it's supposed to go on until 2026. Is, is there any going to be any kind of interim reporting going on that, that people like yourselves can look at and just say, well, this is where they are so far? I, I'm not sure about the answer to that, actually, if I'm honest, Mike. You would hope that they would re release reports from the modules. Um, I don't know if that is the case. And I think that the... I, I think they will. I think, they, I think Baroness Heather Hallett has said she will do right. interim reports. Yeah. So we'll, we'll hopefully get something on that. Right. And I, I mean, I think the really worrying thing is here, there is no examination of the substance as to whether the benefit of lockdown, um, you know, testing and masks. Testing was very interesting, actually, today, wasn't it? Because you could really see that they are starting from the assumption that the answer was more tests mm. and tests sooner. Now, that may or may not be right, but where is the discussion of that to establish it? There has been none. And that has very much been a theme. And I don't think we're going to get those questions answered, because if they were to be answered, it would be this module that was seeking the answers. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, and as far as the old, um, uh, the next week, as you say, Boris Johnson is kind of going to come in. I mean, he's been quite quiet lately. He was, yeah. he was seen at the um, the protest in uh, in support of Israel and uh, the anti-Semitism march on Sunday, uh, which a lot of people thought was a good idea for him to do. Um, but he's been pretty quiet, hasn't he, lately? Well, I suppose last week in the Daily Mail, he did make it clear that he disagreed with Rishi Sunak on immigration, yeah. certainly, but he's been quiet on COVID, and it will be very, very interesting uh, to see what he says on Wednesday and Thursday next week, because mm. there's been so much reporting and also allegations mm. about him. Was he in control or was right. he not? And also we're get, now getting the stage because, as Molly correctly says, we're in the second phase of this, where people are coming back to the inquiry. We've had Dominic Cummings a couple of times, Matt Hancock now his second set of evidence. So we'll hear a lot more from Boris Johnson next week yeah. and he can get his excuses in or his version of events yes. anyway. Interesting stuff, Peter. Thank you very much indeed. Molly Kingsley as well. Uh, thank you. We'll see you next week, I'm sure, uh, because that will be a fascinating uh, interception uh, by Boris Johnson, the former Prime Minister. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham as Labour loses control of a council through resignations and will pay tribute to punk poet Shane McGowan following his passing at the age of 65. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of me, that's Mike Graham. Uh, it may come as no surprise for either party over the last two decades. Labour has admitted to being too detached from rural voters, according to Shadow Environment Secretary Steve Reid. He told farmers and landowners today that Labour now has a respectful attitude towards rural communities under Sakir Starmer compared to the recent past in a bid to create the biggest ever transfer of power from Westminster to the British people in all parts of the country. Here to discuss the inevitable political turmoil we face no matter where we look is the formidable author and sociologist Frank Faraday. Good evening, Frank. Good evening, Mike. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Welcome to the uh, slightly newly and uh, super turbocharged and enhanced Independent Republic, uh, 9 to 11, Monday to Thursday, every single night. We'll have to get into the studio one of these days soon. Um, we've got lots to talk about because I haven't spoken to you for a while. Let's kick it off, first of all, with, uh, with Labour. I always get slightly nervous when I see politicians talking about transferring power from Westminster to the people. I can't remember the last time that happened. Well, that happens quite a lot. They're always transferring power, but what they really mean is that they're shuffling bits of paper <laughs> uh, from one institution to another. And the tragedy <laughs> is, is that uh, the idea of somehow <coughs> you, can, you can transfer power is, is really a nonsense because in general, Power is something that people achieve through their own efforts. I think the only way that there's going to be a genuine transfer of power is if, is if people uh, rise up 
and demand that their voices be heard. Mm. And for that, what we need is uh, new organizations, maybe even new parties uh, that can be much more representative of the interests of everyday people. Yes. Well, I mean, I like that line from The Godfather where they say, you know, power can never actually be given, it can only be taken. And I think that's probably true. Um, and we've seen quite a bit of that. And I haven't had a chance to talk to you about this, so I'm going to do it now. You know, over the course of the last sort of seven or eight weeks, while um, we've been watching the dreadful things that have been going on uh, in the Middle East from October the 7th to now, um, it's been an incredible kind of time for political discourse of sometimes a very unpleasant nature. But we've seen the Labour Party reacting to pressure from various different groups. We've seen Labour MPs resigning from the front bench roles that they were given because they wanted to vote for a ceasefire. We've seen Keir Starmer trying to contain various elements inside his own party. We've seen you know, ordinary people marching um, on offices of MPs uh, and trying to barricade them in there and trying to persuade them uh, to vote the way they want. Are you seeing this as something new or is this just a, a, a sort of retread of something old? I think it's very much a crystallisation of a lot of the bad things that have been in place, particularly in relation to the power that uh, identity politics uh, has brought to the table. And I think it is very, very interesting. One of the things that you notice straight away is that the people who take the knee, who love Black Lives Matter, who, are, who want to decolonize anything that moves, who want to basically indoctrinate children with transgenderist ideology, are also uh, the same people that think that Hamas is God's gift to the Middle East. Yeah. And that on balance, uh, they think that Hamas needs uh, their support and Israel uh, exists on a lower moral plane because in their eyes, uh, Israel and Jewish people are seen as the apotheosis of white privilege. They're hyper-white in their eyes. So in many ways, what we're seeing in, in, and what, what this conflict in the Middle East has done is it brought out the, the worst features, the most corrosive, destructive features of identity politics, which unfortunately has been unchecked by the major political parties. And we're seeing the result of that uh, on the streets of England. Yeah, and not just on the streets of England. I mean, I've been watching what's been going on in the United States as well. And today there was footage of, you know, protesters fighting with police in New York City. Uh, we saw last night uh, in Oakland, California, uh, ordinary members of the public getting up and actually speaking, not just on behalf of Palestine at, at, at town meetings, but on behalf of Hamas. It is, and it is uh, incredible. Uh, I mean, I talked to several people who, uh, when I tell them, aren't you horrified by what happened on the 7th of October? Aren't you really upset about it? They look at me and they say, how do you know that this even happened? How do you know yeah. that this was just simply made up? And there's this denial of some, one of the most horrific uh, events that has ever occurred. And what's really happening that, that I find very interesting is that you get, you get these demonstrators who used to go around saying uh, words are violence, and they would go on and talk about silence mm. is violence. Yeah. But when there's real physical violence uh, and atrocity being committed on children and women in southern, uh, in southern Israel, uh, all of a sudden, that, that is not violence in their book. It, it's a very strange, uh, weird, uh, almost surreal way that they see the world at the moment. Yeah. And does it have, do you think, a lasting effect on the political landscape? I mean, will we end up with a load of Labour MPs standing at the next election and talking about what goes on in the Middle East, talking about if there is, at some point, 
any kind of settlement or any kind of solution found. Will it be a factor, I suppose, is the question? I think it will. I, th I think, for example, uh, uh, the, the events in the Middle East were a factor in the elections in Holland just very recently. And one of the reasons why the populist party of Wilders uh, won uh, such a decisive support was because a lot of Dutch people are worried that the kind of Islamist violence that they mm. see in the Middle East is going to come and hunt them in, in, in Holland. Uh, so there you have a different kind of reaction to, to what has occurred than in England. In England, what you've got is a situation where many Labour MPs feel that uh, their future and the future of their party depends on monopolising the Muslim vote. Mm. And for that reasons, they're prepared to forgive many, many things that Hamas does. And they take an unusually one-sided and, and in many respects, uh, grotesque orientation towards Israel. They don't understand that Israel is fighting for its survival. They have this fantasy that somehow Israel is this super state mm. uh, who is responsible for everything that's evil in the Middle East. Unfortunately, the Labour Party has got to come to terms with geopolitics and understand that what's happening in the Middle East isn't just about Israel, it's about Britain as well. And if they allow Hamas kind of violence to go unchecked, it's going to come back and hunt them here in, in Britain as well. Mm. Yeah, I think it's a really, really dangerous time for, for all sorts of reasons and nobody really knows which way it's going to go. I mean, we've got um, COP28 uh, being meeting, meeting out there in Dubai at the moment, which we're going to talk about later on the show. Um, but the Middle East is such a, a, a kind of a turbulent mixture right now of all sorts of, uh, of interests. You know, the Iranian uh, play, players who are involved. We've got the Hezbollah people in the north of... Uh, uh, north of Israel, of course, where they're still possibly going to fight with Lebanon. We've got Qatar basically being the kind of middleman uh, in all of it. We've got Saudi Arabia pushing forward as this kind of new venture, places where sports events get 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 played, where footballers are going to, to, to go. I mean, it's, I feel as though we're at a sort of epoch of a new era. Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, if you take, for example, uh, Qatar, which is ostensibly meant a middleman, even though Qatar is well known for financing Hamas now for some time, Qatar seems to be in the business of uh, establishing a base for itself throughout Europe. It's buying up not only uh, sporting organizations, but it's also uh, buying up media outlets, uh, getting involved in different industries. It's almost as if what you have is a reversal of the process that in the 19th century, the, went, the West went to the Middle East to establish its own bridgehead. Now, many of these very rich uh, Middle East uh, nations are coming to Europe and are establishing their own presence uh, and, and very powerful presence at that. Yeah. So in many ways, what we're seeing is a, is a, a, a reversal of, of, a, of, a, of the old process of imperialism coming back to bite us in the 21st century. Yes. We'll have to keep an eye on it. Frank, good to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Frank Ferreira, sociologist, professor, of course, as well, talking about the dangers uh, of the world that we now live in. And you can't imagine anything worse, can you? I just can't imagine where it's all going. We'll take your calls. 0344-499-1000 is the number. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Coming up, as the Duke and Duchess maintain their silence, the storm engulfs the royal household. We'll take a look at Slippery Scobie and how this new book is taking the complete mic.
Welcome back. You're watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now it's time for taking the mic. Piers Morgan has played another blinder tonight after shaking the world with his decision to reveal last night the names of the two royals at the centre of a racism row. He has taken the story on tonight with a cast of characters that include Prince Harry the Dimwit and Lickspittle Omid Scobie the Proven Liar. He has set a hair running through the corridors of power, through the palaces of the world and even in the hallowed halls of the mansions of Montecito. From Oprah Winfrey in California to King Charles in Dubai, this story has been at the top of the news agenda for 24 hours. And it was Piers Morgan who put it there. And if anyone is in any doubt that this isn't important, have a listen to what he said. He's spoken of the shameful silence of the Duke and Duchess of Netflix, the unforgivable leaking of private letters by Scobie, and the now denied impression given by the ghastly couple that their initial allegations of racism were all the fault of the British press. This is a story of privilege, of spoiled brats, of veiled threats, of rumour, of backstabbing and inevitably of family feuds. Meghan Markle came into the royal family as a much-loved and respected addition to a much-loved institution. An institution, by the way, that she had admired all of her life. Despite what she says now, Prince Harry has now been taken away from that family, whether that is by his own hand or hers. They profess to be happy about leaving the institution and the country, but they don't look it. In America, they've become the butt of jokes on television shows, in comedy clubs, and even at the high-end show business parties they so adore. Their plans to dominate the podcasting world lie in tatters. Their hopes of millions of dollars coming their way with a production company seem to have hit the buffers. And now it looks as though their dubious attempts to smear the entire royal family in that Oprah interview have backfired as well. But let's not forget what the effect of those allegations were. People around the world thought that Britain was a racist country, headed by a royal family that was also inevitably racist. And that was unforgivable. Now, thanks to Piers Morgan, we can have the truth, finally. Unless, of course, Harry and Meghan suddenly decide to set the record straight. Now, we'd love to hear your opinions on this show, so lots of you have been getting in touch to have your say. You can, of course, uh, get in touch on all the socials at Talk TV, and the phone number that you will need is this, 0344 499 Let's hear now uh, from Tony, who's in Norwich. Hi, Tony. Hello, Mike. Uh, I was just, try- just ringing you up to tell you, I'm a... I live in, I live in Norwich. That's mainly Labour-run council. Right. And what they've done is they got a level and up grant from the government, and what they do, they dug up a fee pay from the slabs, decided to build a torn for information brief, and the part of the city was not really need doing that. Right. And a few years ago, they spent £50,000 on, on, on consultants to find out where they could save money. That's ridiculous. And did they ask anybody what they wanted them to do? I know. Well, I'm saying if, if Labour they get into power, what difference is it going to make? I mean, what difference are they going to make? Right. I don't think it's going to make any difference at all. In fact, people say, well, things can't get any worse. I think they can get worse. Well, uh, that's what I said. And, that's what I said. And, uh, oh, sorry, I'm not reading, I'm not, it's, oh, sorry, I'm not reading the bottom of the screen. It says Labour loses control of Norwich City Council yeah. after, losing, after four resign. Yeah. That's I'm, the bottom of the screen. I'll just read now. That's interesting. I'll bet that's interesting. Yeah. I'm not surprised. Oh, I'm not surprised either. I think they're going to lose Mate, control well, of a, a well, lot more. I said, obviously, we're... Obviously, we've got a half yard county council. It's one, it's, my, it's many conservative run as well, so you can't win either way. No, no. So what are you going to do? Which way are you going to vote? 
I'm, I don't vote. I, st- I give up. I give up voting. <laughs> you know, last time I actually voted was a Tony Very Blair sensible. one. That's last time I actually voted. I just give up now. Yeah, I think a lot of people have given up the ghost on the voting front. There's not any point. You're just going to get more of the same. There is, of course, that famous phrase, isn't there? Uh, I think it came uh, from P.G. O'Rourke, the American writer, who said, yeah. don't vote. It only encourages them. Uh, absolutely right. Straight on with that one. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Up next, first she ditched the Tories and now her son has been handpicked for a plum Labour seat at the next election. So will this spark another row over nepotism in Westminster? That's next. Don't go anywhere. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Good evening. You're watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk. We're on TV, we're on radio, we're online. And, of course, we're on your smart speaker as well. Now, tonight, the Prince and Princess of Wales ignore the fallout from the Omid Scobie race route as they arrive hand-in-hand at the Royal Variety Performance. And world leaders descend onto Dubai for the COP28 Climate Summit. Plus, Musk Madness, what's got the world's richest man firing an expletive-laden warning shot to advertisers? It's all coming up next. We've got loads going on in this hour. We've got some very funny things to tell you about as well. Alan Brazil from Talk Sport uh, has been turned into a cartoon uh, and it's one of the funniest things I think I've ever seen. We're going to play you a little bit of that coming up a little bit later on. Don't forget, you can get in touch with the show on all the socials of Talk TV and on the phones. 0344 499 1000 calls will cost just the national rate. But let's think about this. We all remember those dark days of the COVID pandemic, the social distancing, the takeaway pubs, the closed GP surgeries and the empty roads. It almost seems like a dream at times, doesn't it? And then you remember the fuss over the Downing Street parties, the hounding of Boris Johnson. He was forced to admit he'd eaten some birthday cake on his birthday because someone brought it into his office. For the pleasure of that, he received a fixed penalty fine, as did the current Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak. But who can forget the Chief Inquisitor, appointed to investigate the parties because of her unfathomable levels of integrity and trustworthiness, not to mention her amazing neutrality. I'm talking, of course, about Sue Gray. But that was when she was a permanent secretary in the Cabinet Office and one of the country's top civil servants. Now, she's got a slightly different job. That's right, as the Chief of Staff to Sir Keir Starmer, the leader of the Labour Party. And as if she needed to press home her Labour credentials, it now turns out her son, Liam Conlon, has been selected to run as the prospective MP 
for the party in the marginal seat of Beckenham and Penge. By coincidence, the seat that Sir Bob Stewart, a Tory, is retiring from. Apparently, young Liam has got a history of boasting about his mother's role in busting Partygate wide open and helping to get rid of Boris Johnson. Hmm, she was meant to be neutral. Now, uh, more than 160 world leaders are expected to attend the COP28 climate summit, which begins in Dubai today. The Conference of the Parties summit brings together a broad range of the biggest names in politics, business and climate activism. But as usual, uh, there's a bit of controversy over several names on the invitation list, as well as the obvious hypocrisy. King Charles, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, David Cameron will all take separate private jets to lecture the world about climate change. Uh, Humza Useless is there as well. But it's not just world leaders trying to tackle climate change. UK 100 is a network of local leaders who have pledged to help councils reach net zero. The organisation has been criticised for being funded by billionaires and many people are calling for some people to take back control of their democracy. Joining me now to discuss this controversial summit is the sister editor of The Spectator, Cindy Yu, and author of Not to Zero, Ross Clark. Good evening to, to both of you. Very nice to see you. Um, Cindy, let me start with you. Um, the great thing about COP28 is that it's the 28th COP uh, that we've seen. And as I've said to somebody today, uh, the only thing we know for sure that they'll agree on uh, is that there will be a COP29. <laughs> that's a good that's a good one mike um but actually you know in the first 12 hours of it opening they have actually managed to get one schedule presumably scheduled announcement out uh, in the last few hours which is the uae has pledged a hundred million dollars to uh poorer countries in the world to tackle their climate change now that's an offer matched by germany uh the uk's tossing some money as well uh, and the us has trailed behind and china hasn't pledged any money at all so i think for the host at the uae this is quite a good start because it shows them in a good light having been accused of being an oil oil yes. nation in the run-up but i mean for them a hundred million uh, quid or a hundred million dollars is not very much is it i mean there's kind of stock in trade is is billions and billions of, of petrodollars uh, that they can buy anything with, whether it's a football team, uh, whether it's the, the Shard building in London, whether it's Harrods, you know, anybody in the Middle East can pretty much buy the rest of the world, can't they? Or indeed the spectator, uh, Well, <laughs> very much. Yeah, I didn't want to uh, intrude on private grief. I wasn't sure what you might want to say about that. But, yeah, I mean, they've got plenty of money, but it does seem a bit incongruous, doesn't it, that you've got this big oil-producing nation suddenly hosting everybody who's flown in on private jets to talk about not say not changing all your emissions well, yes and no. I mean, my position is that for political leaders, I want them to be using their time properly. So I'd rather Rishi Sunak was taking a private jet to Dubai than interrailing his way or sailing or whatever it is. Um, so I, I'm, I'm not so fussed about that. Um, I also think that it's these oil guzzling, uh, guzzling nations that are more important to get on board. My, my latest article for The Spectator um, is all about China's own green drive and just how much it's dominated the renewables industry globally, but also how much it's also uh, made renewables much more bigger source of its own energy at home as well. So it is these kinds of countries that we need to tackle. Uh, and also because they have so much money, they have a huge potential in making renewables cheaper than they were before, you know, the kind of 
wind power uh, breakdown in prices we've seen in the last 10 years wouldn't really have been possible without a lot of countries getting on board. So on that, I'm, I'm slightly more woke, I just have to say, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I don't mind. It's, it's, all views are, are, are admissible in the independent republic. Ross Clark, let me ask you about the, uh, the, the cost of renewables, though, because it's a bit of a con going on, it seems to me, whenever we hear about subsidised renewables in this country. And over in um, the Middle East, of course, they could make oil and, and gas that they sell us a lot cheaper if they wanted to. Um, but they don't. Um, no, well, I mean, what's going on at, at the moment? I mean, but by the way, Cindy was talking about the, the massive expansion of um, China's renewables. I mean, that is true. They are they are building a, a lot of renewables, but they're also building a, a lot of coal-fired power stations. Mm. And, um, you know, Xi Jinping... Um, two years ago, he said, you know, we're only going to build um, coal-fired power stations in futures back up to uh, renewable energy. And what did he go and do? He actually sped up the construction of um, coal-fired power. And you think, why, you know, why is China sort of undercutting um, Britain, Europe and possibly America when it comes to building sort of electric cars and, and the like? And um, part of the reason for that is because... Their, their industry is still powered by quite cheap coal and, and their um, electricity is, a, as a consequence, a lot cheaper. And, you know, look what's happening in Britain tonight is the national grid yet again is offering bungs to um, householders to turn off their fridges, turn off their appliances so they can earn a tenner or something. Why is it doing this? It's because... The air is still, Britain is becalmed, it's November, there's hardly any solar energy coming in, and Britain's renewables infrastructure is failing to deliver the goods. And we've only got, so we've closed most of our coal-fired power, we've got um, still got some gas, thankfully, um, which we can turn up, but we've only got so much gas, and the national grid is under strain already from renewables. And what is going to happen in 2035 or 2030, if Labour get into power, when they say we want to remove all fossil fuels from the grid by that date? And what backup do we have then? There's, there's no plan. There's no plan for storage. There's no plan for, you know, backup other than gas-fired power. So, you know, we're, we're heading into this sort of energy sort of um, desert. We're turning ourselves into an energy desert while, you know, likes of China, UAE, um, India and so on, uh, you know, are really making a priority out of energy security. India, too, is, you know, investing hugely in coal-fired power. Um, you know, they're taking energy seriously. We, we seem to be sort of uh, just making this sort of trying to make this sort of environmental statement of getting to net zero at or any cost, and um, it is, frankly, going to cost us a fortune. Yeah, we are sort of tinkering around the edges, Cindy, aren't we? I mean, China, um, for all of its criticisms and all of its critics, does seem to be uh, able, I suppose, to take on any number of different projects. I mean, I'm not sure what China wants to get out of COP28, um, if anything, but as you say, you know, they, they haven't agreed to give any money to anybody else. You know, they're perfectly happy um, just being there, I guess. 
Yeah, China's been to every single COP there is, all 28 so far. Um, and the reason for that is because in the early years, China went as a de- developing nation. Right. So it was one of these countries looking for handouts, really, from the developed nations. Over the last you know, five years or so, that argument has become increasingly hard to make, especially as China becomes more and more, uh, takes up more and more of the world's emissions. And so China is now in this transition phase where developed nations are saying to it, well, come on, you've got to pay your dues as well. And China is trying to still kind of pass itself as a developing nation in terms of the responsibilities and the rewards that it gets. So it's it has always talked to talk on climate, but it doesn't really like any actual strict targets limiting itself unless for self-interested reasons. So, for example, it does have a 2030 target of peaking emissions by then, uh, which it looks like it's going to be on track to, to, to meet. But the main reason for that is because A, pollution in China has become a legitimacy issue for the CCP in the sense that uh, the new middle classes were no longer happy with air pollution and right. river pollution. You know, it was becoming a real serious political issue for them. And so they wanted to tackle that. And B, the huge domestic market is an amazing jumping jumping board for these global increasingly global renewables companies like the Chinese EVs or the Chinese wind turbines or the Chinese solar power, you know, if they can have domestic customers, they can really take over the world as well. So for all of these reasons, China's also looking to increase its renewables mix, um, but not necessarily because Xi Jinping is some kind of subscriber to the Greta Thunberg school of thought. Uh, no, quite. And what about the, the way that, uh, that it sort of manages to balance the increased middle classes uh, with ever-increased kind of awareness of what's going on in the rest of the world, perhaps, and, and their kind of lives and the quality of those lives that they've got in China. Uh, do they have to weigh up how much of that they want to kind of allow to happen, if you like, because inevitably what might happen um, is that the middle classes say, well, actually, we don't really fancy this government much either. Well, exactly, Mike. And, and you know, in the early reform era, when you're just coming out of the Cultural Revolution and Maoism, you're not really going to be fussy about what your air tastes like or your water tastes like, uh, because everyone's just trying to get rich, make sure that they have a better standard of living, get an education, all that sort of stuff. But as the reform era went on, uh, when we get into the noughties, as air pollution got even worse, because the Industrial Revolution was basically packed tight into a few years in China, um, people started having more of these other concerns. You know, they want their children to be healthy. But by about the time of the Beijing Olympics, the government's own figures in China said that hundreds of thousands of people a year were dying in China because of air pollution. It was becoming a real political issue to the extent that Chinese people started sharing the U.S. embassy's own independent air quality uh, stat because they didn't believe what the Beijing government was saying anymore. So it it becomes really, really political very fast. And that's why it's uh, they've cut it. And now so China is not one of China's not the most polluted country in the world anymore. Beijing is not really up there. Uh, It's more cities in India that are more polluted. It is still very bad. You know, many cities are still many levels above the WHO safe air measure, um, but it is much better. I think they've halved their air pollution in the last 10 years alone. So it, it has got much better. It's going in the right direction. But as I say, I think because the middle class has made it such a political issue. Yeah. Cindy, nice to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Final word, Ross, from you. Maybe you should send Sadiq Khan down there uh, to clean up the air down in China because obviously that's what he's doing in London. Um, What is Rishi Sunak going to get out of this, if anything? Because he's supposed to be rowing back from the old net zero scenario, isn't he? 
Well, he is. He's relaxed one or two targets. He hasn't really shifted on it. But why is he going to COP28? Because I think he feels he has to, because if he doesn't, and of course, last year, he wasn't going to go to COP27 in Egypt. He tried to skip it. And there was just such a criticism. Oh, you're not taking the climate seriously. that He had to feel he had to jump on a plane and um, go, go there. But I mean, as for the targets, you know, he's relaxed. The ban on petrol diesel cars going back to 2035 rather than 2030. But, you know, what he hasn't done is relax the targets along the way. So from next year, um, all car manufacturers are supposed to ensure that at least 22% of their vehicles are um, pure electric, and that target remains in place. Yet, you know, these car companies, they, they can't shift the electric cars, not to private buyers. We've had a lot of okay. fleet buyers buying them because of the tax advantages, but private buyers have just pretty well stopped buying electric cars. And, um, you know, heat pumps, um, the government sort of relaxed the target where people in countryside with oil boilers were going to be banned from fitting new oil boilers from 2026. That's now been put back to 2035. But still, you know, the government is way, way behind on its target to uh, install heat pumps. It wanted 600,000 a year by the end of, um, you know, 20, the end of this decade. Well, all it's managed so far in the past two years is 20,000 heat yes. pumps. It, it's a long, well, long way. They're too expensive. Nobody wants them, and that's part of the problem. Ross, great to see you. Thank you very much indeed. Ross Clark there uh, reporting in to us uh, alongside Cindy Yu uh, from The Spectator. Ross's book, Not Zero, uh, highly recommended, of course. Uh, much more for us to do. We'll take some calls from you as well, 0344 499 1000. Uh, now, though, time for the veterans' voice, uh, where we dedicate some time to the issues affecting veterans and their families, uh, trying to bring those issues and problems and challenges that they face uh, while transitioning uh, from the military to civilian life and continue to support them and their families uh, post-military service. Tonight, uh, Hugh Andre is here with us, British Army veteran, of course, and he's brought a good mate of his, ex-Scottish rugby player, Matty Stewart. Uh, good evening to both of you. Thanks very much for joining us. Um, well, Hugh, good to Mike. see you. Good to see you. Um, what, have you what have you got for us this week? Well, I think the biggest news, Mike, and very much thanks to Talk TV and the veteran's voice is that our good friend Badger down yeah. in West Cornwall, who was evicted a couple of weeks ago, yeah. has been given £20,000. That's amazing, isn't it? By an, by an 80 year old RAF veteran. Wow. Which has uh, allowed him, he's got temporary accommodation elsewhere, but that's really set him on his way to buying some land um, and really, you know, uh, ensuring that. Noon Craig, as a veteran's retreat, will be safe and secure in the future. So he's about to uh, launch a fundraiser to try and raise another 20,000 to get him three or four acres. But that's a massive, massive win, and a huge amount of that credit has to go to Talk TV and the Veterans Voice. Yes, listen, well, we're very proud to help with anything that we can, but what a great um, move from the, uh, from the RAF veteran uh, to give up that sort of money. Um, what will Badger be able to do with it, do you think? Well, I mean, when I was last down there, they were looking at about £10,000 an acre uh, on the coast, uh, basically looking at sort of land that's good for grazing. But as we know, Badger wants to be by the sea. He does a lot of cold water therapy. Uh, he teaches the guys 
and girls how to forage, teaches them dry stone walling. Um, so, you know, he's got his heart set on trying to find some land down there. So, right. look, this is a, a huge start that will set him on his way. Brilliant stuff. And you brought us a special guest, as I say, Matty Stewart, uh, former yeah, Scotland I, I, yeah, international rugby player. Yeah, I do. And I've, I've known this young man for many, many years. <laughs> um, I knew him when he was a, a young Lance Corporal in the army. And he turned up, and because he was a bit of a lump, we said, right, boxing or rugby? And he said, I'll do both. Uh, the rest is history, because he went on. He started off playing, I don't know, for the Canterbury Old Fallopians 15, and within about half an hour was at Blackheath, and an hour later was at Northampton, and he went on to win 34 caps for Scotland. Mm. Um, but, you know, what I love about Matty is not only did he set his heart and mind on being the best that he could in the army, when he left, he decided he wanted to set up his own business, he sort of used his determination, his tenacity, his professionalism, and today he runs uh, Workwear Northampton, and I'm not going to steal his thunder because he's bigger than me, so I'll, uh, I'll, <laughs> I'll hand you over to Mr Matty Stewart. Yeah, so Matty, welcome to the show. Thanks for, for joining us. What did you Hello, find was, was the, the most difficult part of starting a business coming out of the military? Because presumably money wasn't exactly something you had a lot of. Yeah, well, I, it was the uh, a low barrier to entry, really. So I wanted something where I didn't have to spend too much money uh, starting the en enterprise. Right. So uh, I worked, I worked above a mate's garage with a phone, and uh, I helped someone out who already had a clothing business, uh, and I found out I could probably run the business better than him. So I took it over, and that was over ten years ago. Now we're going quite quite well, actually. Right. So what is it that you do specifically? We we supply work embroidered and printed workwear to the construction and also sports uh, sportswear to the uh, the, the, the uh, sportswear industry. Okay. And as far as coming out of the military and, and starting to do all that, was it just something that you wanted to do, that you had to do yourself? Did you get any help? Uh, I did get help, and that's, that's, there's a lot of help out there. But, you know, you spend... You spend all your, your your days in the army and in, in my elite sport. So you are sort of like uh, drilled into working hard and being very disciplined. And I think those are the traits which, you know, ha held you in good stead when, in the, when you're running your own business. Mm. So I took, I transferred those skills into my business and uh, it's gone really well, thank you. Right. And do you have a, an opportunity for anybody that you look out for who is coming out of the military? Uh, to try and sort of bring them on to, into your business as well. Yeah, well, there's there's a lot of there's a good network of ex forces, you know, um, LinkedIn, social media, and you see it all the time. So, you know, I employ one of my old uh, buddies uh, from my unit, who's probably one of my best employees and amazingly task focused, and you know, I can give him any job and he gets that done. So that's what the military really brings to the workforce. Mm. Yeah, no, I think they absolutely do. Hugh, let me bring you back in uh, to this, because you and I have spoken about many different opportunities that people can have coming out of the military, trying to get themselves into work. And there's a there is a huge kind of um, panorama, isn't there, of, of, of military companies that have been started by people from the military and who will help other yeah. members of the military get into it. Yeah, there are. And, you know, the Veterans Minister's uh, engaged uh, sort of an employment programme in the last couple of weeks. But really, uh, at the end of the day, Mike... 
companies have got to give veterans a chance. Yeah. You know, and if they set them up correctly, don't set them up to fail. You know, set them up with a mentor. Make sure you're very clear about what you want them to achieve. Let them know what their boundaries and constraints are, what they can decide upon, what they can't decide upon, and then just set them off. Because, you know, Matty's a great example. They've got the drive, the determination, the professionalism. They get out of bed in the morning and they turn up for work early. And I think that's, you know, that's really what employers want at the mm. end of the day. Yeah. They really do. Listen, great to see both of you. Matty, uh, good luck with it. Thank you very much indeed. Hugh, Andre, we'll see you again soon. Take care of yourself. Uh, that was the Veterans Thank Voice. Uh, we'll have more on that, of course, um, uh, coming up throughout the rest of the year here uh, at Talk TV. You're watching The Independent Republican, Mike Graham. Coming up, Elon Musk's extraordinary tirade has once again raised questions about survival of X. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham. If you're the richest man on earth, people tend to assume you're quite good at your job. Uh, here's how Elon Musk sold his social network to jumpy advertisers in an important on-stage interview last night. You don't want them to advertise? No. What do you mean? If, if somebody's going to try to blackmail me with advertising, blackmail me with money, go yourself. But... Go yourself. Is that clear? Uh, I hope it is. Hey, Bob, if you're in the audience. Uh, the Bob that Mr Musk was talking about there was Bob Iger, Disney's chief executive. The reason he pulled his ads from X was because Musk apparently uh, was thought to have endorsed an anti-Semitic post. Um, but Elon Musk, what a character. I mean, I don't get the fact that so many people think uh, that he's not running it very well. And like he said, he can't really bribe him with money. He's the richest man on the planet. Uh, now, one more thing before we start looking at what's going on in the papers. If you're like me, a fan of Talk Sports, the Debrief podcast, well, it's getting even better. They've launched a cartoon version via YouTube. Let's take a sneak peek at Alan Brazil's trip to Paris. And he's gone for me. We ended up having a fight, Gab. Did you? Yeah, we ended up having a fight. I'm Who won? Who won? Naked, right? And I, well, I'd get him a headlock eventually, and I'd give him a couple of crackers. <laughs> <laughs> I'd give him a couple of crackers. Have that. Bang, 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 bang. And then there was a bang, bang, bang in the door. Monsieur Brazil, sir, monsieur, monsieur, no, 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 no. They opened the door, and the manager's there with Jill, and I've got Jean-Pierre in a headlock giving him a couple. They've only given me the wrong key to the room. <laughs> Uh, that's the legendary Alan Brazil talking about how he somehow ended up in the wrong room uh, in a hotel in Paris, got into the bed, only to discover a guy coming out of the shower um, who he didn't recognise, who he thought was in there uh, with his wife, um, which is how they ended up fighting. I mean, it's one of those ridiculous situations, but very funny. Um, uh, animated talk sport, you can't, you can't miss it. Uh, tonight, uh, you'll be hearing and seeing them uh, laughing, hopefully, very shortly. My stellar panel, communications director of the Henry Jackson Society, uh, making Gitto's political editor the Daily Express, Sam Lister, uh, and writer and broadcaster Candice Holdsworth, uh, who's at Talk TV an awful lot. So you should recognise her. <laughs> Welcome to everybody. The first female panel, by the way, uh, which I think is rather good. Bit of a milestone for the independent Republican, Mike Graham. Um, we've got lots going on. I guess we sort of have to kick off with this uh, royal row uh, kicked off by Piers Morgan last night when he decided, mm. the hell with it. Um, why can't we name these people? Because nobody else is. And it's still rolling on. Um, we've got nothing yet from uh, from uh, Meghan and Harry, but we have got uh, William and Kate out tonight at the Royal Variety Show. Um, what do you make of it all, Sam? 
Well, I think that um, Kate has taken the right decision to go out there, looking graceful, keeping quiet. That is the, the royal way, isn't it? Um, yeah. Keep calm, carry on, don't explain, don't complain. And I yeah. think that would be a very sensible um, option. There's a suggestion on the Telegraph that they might take legal action. I think that would be a mistake. I think they need to rise I can't believe it. they'll do that. I don't think so. And I think also... You give legitimacy to this man if you engage yeah. in, in with him in any way, shape right. or form. And if you go down the court route, the legal action route, you're giving him a whole new platform. Yeah. I would massively steer clear of that if I were them. Although the point was made earlier tonight um, by Piers Morgan that, that one of the things that Prince Harry and Meghan love to do is sue people. Um, and funnily enough, they've stayed very quiet on this. They're not saying that... Uh, They've given him the permission to say these things. They've not said that they didn't give him permission. And a lot of people think that Harry and Meghan are going to have to come out with something soon. Well, there's, there's so many parties in this. And it's interesting you mentioned suing because there's also the translator, there's the guy who said that he didn't put the names in. And right. yet there must be receipts for these things. I almost want someone in one of the parties and one of those right. interested to start a case so the receipts will come to light and right. we know what actually happened. Because the translator's saying the names are in there, he's saying they weren't. Well, then surely he has a case. Yeah, then. right. It, it, the whole thing reeks of a PR stunt mm. and that there are actually victims in this. And, yeah. so... and, I mean, if Omid Scobie um, decides, I suppose, that uh, he wants to tell the truth, and this is why I think, um, Candice, that what Piers Morgan did was actually quite a clever move because he's basically put him on the spot and said, all right, well, if you say that this is what was said or this was in a letter, then you might as well come forward and say it. Yes. Um, but he's not done that. Yes. All this innuendo and all this secrecy and sort of implying who it could be and, you know, I can tell. Whenever I look at Omid Scobie, whenever he's talking about it, he's revelling in it. Yeah. He loves the controversy. I must say, though, that if it is one of the people who they said it was, it explains to me a lot of the anger and the antagonism towards her. Yeah. Because I thought, is it just like normal rivalry between sister-in-laws? But no, there's, there's something else there. There's something deeper. Yeah, sure. I don't know about that. I just always thought that Meghan just didn't like the fact that she came to Kensington Palace and she wasn't number one because she thought she would be and she had to kind of wait behind yeah. somebody else because and, and, that was just the way tradition had it. Yes. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, I always thought that, though. How is she going to deal with that, having to curtsy? Yeah. And having to show deference and having to walk behind people? Right. She's absolutely going to hate that. Right. It's not going to work. And it didn't work. No. It didn't. And, I mean, the Mirror's got the uh, the story King and Kate in race row, so I guess they've decided to take the decision to name them as well because up until today, I don't think any other... I don't know whether the Express is going to name them. No, um, I mean, I think that's it. After last night, uh, I think, although um, newspapers, certainly the, the Daily Mail this morning, put it on the front page but wouldn't name them... But didn't and, name and, them, yeah. ..and most papers followed suit. But, obviously, by by the same point, uh, we are, where the point we are tonight... Um, you've had a whole 24 hours of, of the internet running wild. And right. You can't put that genie back in the bottle. So yes. I think all, all of Fleet Street's had to kind of accept that it is out there. Mm. And now, obviously, people want to see it in the papers as well. They readers want to know what, what this is all about. Yeah. And you can't dance around it forever right. if, it's, if it's out there. This the is wild. one of the things that's changed, isn't it, in, yeah, in the business uh, of communication? Yeah. Yeah. So much because of not just the internet, but generally of social media. And newspapers now having you know, sort of two-pronged business. They've got what they do online and what they do mm. um, in print. Yeah, and, and it's sort of a, readers. Yeah, and it's kind of an unfair level... It's an unlevel playing field, isn't it, yeah. really? Because lots of people can say whatever they want on the internet, whether they've, you know, got any truth behind it or whether they can prove it. Because if they haven't got any assets, nobody cares. <laughs> but if you're a newspaper, you still have to be... 
pretty responsible, right? This is it. And I think this is why all newspapers took some time to think mm. about this and uh, work out the position. But obviously, clearly, the, the royals, you know, as I was saying before, they, they don't explain, they don't com complain. Um, but it does mean that they don't get their side out there. Mm. Uh, we have to go through the kind of sourcing process. But it isn't, you're not going to get um, Kate out there giving her side of the story, right. are you? And so, no. in a way, you've just got this smear now that is running wild on the internet. It's now in the papers. It's not great for... The royal family, I think they're going to be pretty fed up about it, but there's not really an awful lot they can do yeah. to stop it. Yeah, I mean, they can't be any more fed up about it than they are about Harry and Meghan in general. I do I think thought. that they've seen a lot play out, though, over the past three years, yeah. that they know now where, pub where public support is positioned. So they know this strategy of ignoring it, not giving it life, mm. it, that it will work in their favour, and mm, I think that's yeah. really smart of them. Like, if I was in their position, I perhaps wouldn't say an awful yeah. lot either, and I would just go on. I, so a few papers have hinted that Kate's very brave to go into the royal variety, but I, I think she's just getting on with her life. Well, I don't exactly, think it's bravery. Yeah. Well, because if she suddenly didn't yeah, go, she didn't that would go, be worse. Everyone yeah. would think she's at home crying. Right. So, and and also, let's not forget, I mean, naming them doesn't actually put them in the frame for anything. All no. it does is say that these are the two people um, that, whose names have appeared or whose names were mentioned yeah. to Omid Scobie at some point or other, presumably by Harry and Meghan. Um, all it means is that, you know, there's nothing proven that anybody believes is a racist act of any no, kind. we've got no idea. The whole thing is totally one-sided. Who knows what context it was set in. I think people will be very inclined as well to give Kate the benefit of the doubt. I think she's someone who's seen as kind of unimpeachable, never yes. gets a foot wrong. People cannot imagine her ever saying anything like that with malice. No. Also, I think most people are not that willing to give Harry and Meghan much of a... Um, a go round anymore because we've seen no. what they've said in the past. I mean, all of the stuff that, that we've played out tonight, the original Oprah Winfrey interview, where there was no doubt what they were alleging, absolutely no doubt at all. They were very clearly saying that somebody had asked a question about the colour of their son's skin, which was perceived by Oprah Winfrey, certainly and everybody who watched that show, as being a racist comment. Then Harry comes two years later and says, oh, no, it was the British press that said that. And it's like, I mean, Piers tonight called him a dimwit. He just said, you know... Does he really think we're not going to go back and look at that original interview and see what was said? Yeah. And it is not in any way ambiguous. It is not in any way something that you might think, oh, well, maybe it was just an innocent remark. That's not what they're saying in that interview. Oh, that was planned to create as much controversy as possible. Yeah. And as much headlines as possible. Mm. So that interview was a blockbuster. It was. They knew exactly what effect that was going to have. Of course they did. And for a whole year or two, people from outside of this country looked at Britain as a racist country, thought of the royal family as racist... And it was a very bad time, I think. It's cruel. Yeah. I think even if you were to give them the benefit of the doubt and let's say that something was said and that's a complicated relationship with a complicated yeah. family, mm. I didn't necessarily agree with the backpedalling because you created this toxicity with the country where 50% are standing up for them, 50% aren't, and everyone's fighting and then you're going to say, well, I never used the word racist. Right. I think that was really, uh, like... Yeah, immature, and actually, you probably just should have answered the questions, right. continued to answer yes. them, addressed it properly, and said, oh, maybe we took it the wrong way, I've now spoken to my family, yeah. we've agreed to move on. Right. Yeah, so, so make out like, you know, oh, you're the one now taking something out of that. You're yeah. Going, Sorry? I mean, even Tom Bradbury, he goes, right. You can tell that he's actually quite annoyed the way that, that Harry's answered the question, you know? I mean, they lobbed a grenade and then yeah. they were surprised when it exploded. Right. And it was just, you know, <laughs> of course it was going to cause... And so you'd have to right. say, maybe that's what's happening here. Maybe yeah. that's why this strange thing happened in the Netherlands, of all places, where there's one copy of a book that has the names in it. 
I mean, look, that guy who translated the book did yeah. not insert those names. No. So, you know, it, it, it must have been presented to him. Yeah, with well, the to her, here. yeah. I mean, she's, she's saying that in the mail yeah. tonight. Basically, yeah, I, I, looked, I did my job. I took a piece of paper, which was a manuscript, and I translated it. That's yeah. what I do for a living. Mm. This has never happened before. And the words were there. I didn't put them there. You know. So, but it's it's what happened before that. Was there some failure in the yeah. uh, legal process before that? Um, you know, what what happened before? Is mm. it a conspiracy or is it a cock up? I mean, yes. I tend to err on the side of cock up, but you know, maybe you never know with it, with these I guys. Know. Do you? It's Other weird people are more suspicious. No, I've had my suspicions. Yeah, yeah. Yes. It's yeah. weird. It's only happened in one place. Um, Charles is on the front page of the Telegraph as well because, of course, he's out at COP twenty eight. <laughs> um, very exciting times for uh, all environmentalists. Everybody's flown out on separate private jets. I'm told that Rishi Sunak and Cameron have gone separately. I think Humza Useless has also gone from Scotland. You know, I mean, it beggars belief that they keep having these meetings. They keep agreeing things and then nothing really changes. I do think with COP, I mean, it is a, it is a bad look for us as a, as a country, isn't it, to send out all these different people on different planes. Uh, and I think it is that uh, epitome of do as I say, not, not yeah, as I do. Right. And that, that is why people feel so furious about the green measures that people are trying to introduce, because they, they see powerful people jetting around the world right. and saying, well, look, that's OK for me because I'll, I'll pay for some trees to be planted. Yeah. But you guys can't go on holiday exactly to, right. to Spain. And, and I think this is, it's not a great look. No, and it's also kind of weird having a, a sort of a climate change meeting in the middle of one of the biggest oil-producing regions <laughs> yeah. in the world. I think it's just the irony of that is really quite amusing because COP has the worst communications surrounding it. Yeah. The public do not like being lectured. You're supposed to be getting them on side, inspiring mm. them. But we know politicians in private jets is not actually going to solve this problem or we wouldn't be on number 28. Right. <laughs> we need investment in growth and tech. Tech is going to save this problem. And investing in tech, bringing us away from our reliance on China and their electric car batteries mm. and actually investing and doing it here creates growth and it inspires people and it creates innovation. Our attitude to it is all wrong and then we lecture developing nations right. telling farmers in Brazil that they're using the wrong pesticides while we're going back on almost all mm. of our commitments. Mm. That is just... Well, we were just hearing before mm. you guys came in that, that, that uh, they've already agreed to give something like a couple of hundred million to developing countries. This is in Dubai that they've agreed this. But, I mean, that's easy for them to do that because the Dubai government have got bucket loads of money. Yeah. Um, they're apparently also changing the way that they do things, but they're still producing a load and load of oil. Yeah. And meanwhile, China are doing whatever they like, mm. right? I mean, and it does seem like history is repeating itself with that because we've been really concerned lately with the growth of China and now we're like oh, yeah, the UAE's come to save us. But right. it does seem like we're kind of entering in this world dominance competition. Yeah. Yes. In yeah. five years' times, we're going to be saying, why did no-one do anything to stop it? Why weren't we the ones investing? Yeah, well, that's what we say about everything now. We're saying, <laughs> now, why don't we do something about the migrants a few years ago when, you know, when we were actually saying, maybe you should do something about the migrants? <laughs> and now they're going, what are we going to do now? We don't know. I mean, it is absolutely, absolutely ridiculous. Um, we're going to be catching up with some of the other stories in the papers as well, including... I mean, it was one of those terrible days yesterday when three different sort of well-known people died. Alistair Darling and Shane McGowan is on the front page of The uh, of the Sun and Henry Kissinger as well. So we'll get stuck into all of that. Um, his Christmas classic, is that one of your favourite songs? I love, I love it, yeah, I love absolutely. It. Everyone's favourite. Yeah, I had a weird thing happen to me last year because we, um, I think it was last year when they first decided that they were going to change the lyrics 
and the Pogues kind of got involved in it. Yeah. Radio One said, oh, we can't play, you know, the faggot lyric anymore because it's too horrible and, mm. you know, too uh, disrespectful. And bizarrely, I kind of did a, a bit of a crusade to, to, to keep the original song. And the Pogues appear to have gone a bit woke and they sort of took, took umbrage at me and said, no, 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 <laughs> we want to change the words because they're so rude. I'm going, sorry? So the Pogues actually blocked me on Twitter, believe it or not, um, and, uh, and they allowed the, the new version of the song without the bad words in it uh, to be played on the radio. I know, not very punk rock anymore. Not hey? very Pogue-like. Yes. And I mean, Shane McGowan wasn't part of all that, I have to say. So yes. Apparently um, the Prodigy have also changed their lyrics yeah, to one of theirs. Yeah. Oh, have they? Yeah. Which is so surprising. Yeah. I mean, these people were such edgy characters. Right. Not anymore. I guess no. they all get old. But from punk, there tends to be a sort of line to woke. I've yeah. noticed that. Yes. Look well, at I Johnny Rotten. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of people that... that <laughs> I, I find there's a lot of people from bands that I used to watch when I was sort of in my 20s who were sort of arguing with me now on Twitter because they think I'm a right-wing bigot. And you're yeah. kind of going, sorry, you know, you used to be part of the counterculture. The counterculture has to be right-wing, for heaven's sake. Um, you're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Up next, uh, you're going to love this one uh, because, of course, there's a radio host complaining that he's got too many white colleagues. No guesses who he works for. It's all coming up next. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic and Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now, it's time for this. The World of Woke. Must be really awful working at the BBC. If you're not embarrassed by the constant criticism, the apologies on air for misreporting the war in Gaza, the shutting down of Newsnight or the endless virtue signalling of Gary Lineker, well, actually, there is something worse. We learned today that the BBC is just too white. And this is despite all the jobs they advertise for ethnic minority candidates only. How do we know this? It's simple. Radio 5 Live presenter Niall Arathanaki has told everyone, according to him, uh, that it's horrible. He says there isn't a single Muslim involved in the senior editorial process at 5 Live, and he's complained that the working environment is overwhelmingly white. He says it's bad for his mental health because when he walks into a room, nobody looks like him. It's really affecting me that I walk in and all I see is white people. Poor Nihal. He's only on 150 grand a year. He must feel really hard done by Perhaps if he walks across the department to the Asian network, he might find it a bit less difficult. But can you imagine a white presenter saying the same thing if he was working there? Niall has hit the diversity and inclusion jackpot. He's managed to link race and mental health. He'll probably now have a job for life. The world of woke gets ever more weird every single day. The world of woke. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic. Mike Graham on Talk TV. My panel are still uh, with me, the first all-female panel. Uh, we're going to look at some interesting stories. And we just go back to the, um, the royals because the Daily Mail has come in and they've got Scobie's defence unravels. Authors said for days that the names of the two royals accused of discussing Archie's skin colour were never in his book. But last night, the Dutch translator told the Mail the names were there in black and white. So, um, game set and match, maybe, for him. Yes. I mean, how otherwise would they have got us? Yeah. I mean, it's not like, I mean, it's Holland as well. I mean, they're quite far removed from everything that goes on in the so. press here. I can't imagine he sells that many books in the Netherlands, really. I mean, <laughs> it's a weird place to find, you know, this kind of anomaly. But anyway, we'll come back to that. Um, Megan, you wanted to talk about the eyes, page one, Labour, and it looks like David Lammy's saying this. The oh, EU will be our number one priority for UK foreign policy. I found it really interesting, especially because this happens every election. People uh, say that they're going to do something that already exists. Yeah. 
um, our relationship security-wise with the EU is really good. Mm. And Brexit, of course, Brexit um, ruined those relationships with the EU a little bit. And we know famously Boris and Macron didn't really get on. But since our involvement in Ukraine and leading on that, our relationship with the rest of the EU and the Balkans and Eastern Europe has exponentially improved. Mm. Um, And these systems, I think David Lemming is kind of relying on the general public, not knowing all the different security departments. And Interpol, for example, is the sharing of data, is it not? And so it kind of, it's very typical of an election. It's just posturing. Yes. And Lamy's making out that uh, Starmer has strong chemistry with Emmanuel Macron. Well, Emmanuel Macron might not be in there for very much longer, might he? I mean, he's not doing terribly well either. That's true. I mean, he's deeply unpopular. But I think... Um, from from my point of view, I think it's interesting that Labour are choosing to put these messages out because, um, as you say, not everybody's up on the detail of all these different yeah. um, different uh, agreements we already have in place. But what he is doing here is sending out a wider signal about where Labour is in mm. relation to Brussels. And obviously, um, if you are trying to win over the Red Wall voters, the ones who turned their back on Labour at the last election... Uh, and went to the Conservatives to get Brexit done, uh, I think it's quite an interesting strategy to then start talking about the EU, about closer relations, about signalling that your priority is dealing with Brussels over Mm. other international partners. And so I just wonder, what is the strategy there? That's, yeah, that's a really interesting point. But that's not clear, is it? I mean, nobody really knows what Starmer believes. We know that in his heart, if he has one, he's kind of a Remainer, and he sort of wanted to have a second referendum but he didn't really have the heart to really push for it. Is it that they think they're? Is it that they are getting so confident now that they think the red wall will fall back to them? Yeah. And what they're trying to do is signal to those shyer mm. uh, voters, the ones um, who have been traditionally Tory but could um, flip to, to, to Labour at the next election, are they trying to win those over? Mm. And I feel like it, it looks a bit like they're getting a little bit cocky that yes. they think the red wall is in the bag. Um, so they can go and signal their uh, intentions of being close to Brussels to win over those people down in the south. Mm. Well, maybe, Candice, they're trying to believe the polls that they're seeing because all these polls that we see from YouGov, depending on uh, whether you know what the actual question is, Mm. say that there's more people every sort of year now that want to go back into the European Union. I'm not sure I buy that. I don't think that's true. But, I mean, you could easily be persuaded of that if you were a parliamentary candidate, couldn't you? Well, a lot of people think there's, there's regret. The people's minds have changed. Yeah. And, I mean, that was the whole push for the second referendum, which Starmer But the old Ramonas have been in. saying that forever. I mean, ever since 2016, they've been either saying that you were too thick and that's why you voted for Brexit, or you were too old, that's why you voted for Brexit, uh, or you were ill-informed, that's why you voted for Brexit. Yeah. They don't actually want to believe that people actually voted for it because they wanted it. Mm. Well, they were saying people had changed their minds pretty right. much straight afterwards. Yeah. I mean, they were pushing for a referendum, like, immediately yeah. afterwards. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's still a lot of that going on. I think it's interesting what you say. You know, maybe they're trying to win over these voters in the who could vote either Conservative or could vote Labour mm-hmm. if either are kind of perceived as centrist. Mm-hmm. And you see Sunak sort of angling in that direction now as well. So I wonder if that's where they're both looking at where the sort of, I don't know if you can say it in the context of our electoral system, but the swing voters yeah. are, mm-hmm. you know, where you can pick up extra votes. Yeah. Well, Megan, you can't see the return of David Cameron as anything other than Sunak moving back towards a more kind of Euro-friendly model. Yeah, I see it. Well, I see the return of um, Cameron trying to go for Starmer's centrist votes. Um, Starmer's 
seems to be mimicking that a little bit with this. And it's a really interesting point that you made about the red wall in the EU because to a lot of people, it's very different different. I've always worked in defence side of politics. So it's really different for me. But a lot of people would see the word EU, closer relationship, Mm. security, and they wouldn't necessarily understand. They'd be forgiven for not knowing what that actually means. And it's something that not only do we already have it, yeah, you may strengthen it a little bit, maybe we'll... But these relationships, they're improving by the day. And the departments have never stopped working. We haven't all of a sudden stopped telling France and Germany and Spain when we've got intel on a terrorist. That never went away. And and again, part part of the misinformation campaigns that went on from 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 both sides, you mm-hmm. might say, uh, was 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 the reason why a lot of people didn't know that that was the case. Yeah. For example, and a lot of people talked about the EU army, didn't they? And they were mm-hmm. like, "Oh, we're going to end up with an EU army," which was never really on the cards. No, it's never really been proposed by anybody properly, was it? No, never. It was essentially just us saying, "Well." instead of all of us buying this many Challenger tanks when actually they need to use them properly, you need this equipment and that equipment, it was actually being sure that if Russia did invade Ukraine, we had the stuff to make an effective military yes. for ourselves and for Ukraine. Right, which seems to have happened. Let's and, go yeah. uh, over to something slightly different. Uh, Times page um, six, where they've got an amazing picture of a load of cheese, which <laughs> is quite interesting. Um, but more interestingly, more fathers taking on the main parental role for babies, uh, this is a study from the University College London. I imagine a lot of this has got to do with working from home, isn't it? That's exactly what I was going to say. Right. Because I've got a four-year-old and a two-year-old. Right. And I've certainly noticed at the school gates um, and at nursery there are a lot more dads because they work from home, but their wives are in the office. Yes. So they they have to do drop-offs, they have to do pickups, they have to do phonics lessons, which are always at like the most awkward time of the day. It's like at 10 a.m. in the morning, which yeah. you can't make. And I couldn't make it because I was working. And I said to my husband, I said, were you the only dad? They said, no, there were loads of dads there. Right. So that's actually going on quite a lot now. Mm. I mean, I must say for women, and I mean for me, it's been a big help for me having him at home. It would be, I think, very difficult for me to have a career in the way that I do without that support and without having him around. Right. I think so. the problem, I suppose, for, for a lot of people um, is that you don't want to be together all the time. I mean, I can't imagine what it must be like for a couple who used to work separately in jobs and suddenly they're both working from home. I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm maybe just me. I've <laughs> drive me insane. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that, that uh, any wife of mine would say the same thing. <laughs> you know, you don't want you around the whole time. I mean, I, so I go and see my kids at the weekends and after about three days, we've sort of had enough of each other. <laughs> That's you know. like when I go see my mum, it's like four days max and yeah. I'm just like ready for yeah. But I mean, you know, is it... I feel like it's group therapy now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, does it, give, does it give kids a different perspective on... On you know the world, if yeah. they're being looked after by their dad more than definitely, by their mum. Definitely, definitely. It's totally. So I mean, you read the um, one of the best children's books, and I love it, The Tiger Who Came to Tea. Yes. And that's all about sitting with your mum in the day, and then daddy comes. And dad home. comes home in his hat, his coat. And <laughs> yes. All that. Yeah. And it's different, right? Yeah. Yeah. If dad's sort of lounging in his in his um, you know sort of um, onesie in the living room <laughs> on his on Zoom calls. You know, it's a slightly different dynamic, isn't it? I don't know. Yeah. Um, there's a funny one as well in the time. This one here, page five, aristocrat ousted in village revolt. Now, this is a bloke um, who apparently owns a part of Sandringham Estate, so very posh. Um, Lord Howard of Rising, um, apparently he's resigned from his local parish council uh, because there's been a row over speed limits. There's a lot of people having a lot of rows these days about <laughs> what appear to be very trivial things, <laughs> you know? I don't, I don't Plans for a new 30-mile-an-hour <laughs> speed limit um, has unseated an aristocrat. Very weird. 
Yeah. As long as it's not a 20 mile an hour one, I mean, they are the most annoying. So you know. They are. Yeah. Well, I will say to anybody who's coming to London, I said, don't worry about the 20 mile an hour speed limits because you won't get up to You'll 20 hit miles it, yeah. Uh, there's absolutely no chance. Um, should we talk about Henry Kissinger? Um, yeah. A giant of, uh, of the world, I suppose, of, 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 you know, from Vietnam War all the way through to up until relatively recently, he was still kind of urging um, governments and, and advising governments to do various things, wasn't he? Well, I mean, what, what's really um, struck me today is that um, the tributes or, or, or comments, commentary, is so wild and varied. Yeah. He's either a hero or a villain. Yeah. Um, and which I think, you know, is quite an interesting thing, isn't it, to be so yeah. divisive, but so influential yes. over such a long period. He was period. Very, um, very keen on, on the ladies as well. I was listening to Matthew <laughs> Paris um, on Times Radio this morning, and he was saying that he was at a dinner party once with him, one of these big dinner parties uh, that they do in London, there's sort of 20 odd people, and two of the women who were there had had affairs with him. Yeah, that <laughs> was very going, it was quite extraordinary, <laughs> yes. yeah. And, and I mean, he was a very influential figure. I, I once saw him in New York. I managed to get a table uh, in a Four Seasons restaurant there. And there he was sitting, which is apparently where he went every single day to have lunch in the exact same table, the exact same spot. And just one of those characters you'll never... We don't seem to have characters like that anymore, mm -mm. do we? No. No, mm. couldn't get away with it anymore. Could yes, no. <laughs> Probably not. Final one, front page of the time. Students claim ADHD for additional exam time. Cambridge students are gaming the system by actively seeking diagnoses for mental health conditions that well, mean they can get extra time in exams. We get like two hours extra. I, I know. knew people who got two hours extra for all kinds That's of shocking. things. And then they got a really high mark and I knew they hadn't studied that much. <laughs> right. It was like, oh, Kelsey, please. Well, how did you do that? Also for exams as well. Mm. And I'm um, sorry, I mean for essays. Yeah. For essays, they got extra time on the essays. I got, I know someone who got Loads of extra time yeah. with her dissertation. I mean, she's right. the most disorganised right. person I know. She got a medical. We've got to go. I'm sorry, we've <laughs> talked ourselves into it. Uh, Megan, Sam, uh, Candice, thank you very much indeed. That's all from me tonight. You've been watching Independent Republic uh, of Mike Graham. Uh, I'll see you. I won't see you tomorrow at 9 pm. I will see you at 7 pm with Plank of the Week because uh, it's Friday and it's only on Talk TV. Good night. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.,